So we are talking about the battle for the mind. And last week, as well as the first part of this week, our context is that of spiritual warfare. So last week I had stated that spiritual warfare describes this ongoing battle that exists between the advancement of God's kingdom as well as the opposing influences of evil. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible is very clear on the subject of spiritual warfare. Here's how clear it is. You are in a battle whether or not you realize it or not. It's a battle that is happening all around us. So part of the enemy's strategy is to make believers think there is no battle. Part of the enemy's strategy is to make believers think if there is a battle, it's somewhere else. Part of the enemy's strategy is to make believers think if there is a battle, what I'm going through is not part of it. And as long as the enemy can keep believers deceived and oblivious and unconcerned, we make easy targets. One of the things I shared last week when dealing with spiritual warfare is what you believe determines how you act, and how you act determines if you win. So last week, we started seeing the importance of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And my goal from last week and my goal this week is the same. It's very simple. My focus is to try to help people see that a major part of spiritual warfare is a battle that is happening in your mind and for your mind. Said differently, a lot of the struggles that we face out there is the overflow of the battle that's happening in here. One's the manifestation. The other is where the battle is taking place. When our thoughts are not taken captive, the enemy will build fortresses in our mind that keeps us away from knowing God. So today we're going to see how the practice of taking every thought captive leads directly into God's plan for renewing our minds. We have a lot to cover this morning. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles to two places. We're going to begin 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and then we will be over in Romans chapter 12 in just a few moments. So you can find your place in both texts. I am speaking this morning on the subject, a biblical understanding of mind renewal. So we're going to read our first text, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, and then we'll have prayer and go forward from there. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Heavenly Father, may that be exactly a description of how we live our lives. May it not just be words on a page that we read and study and see the value in, but God, may we be believers walking with you, taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I shared last week, 1 Corinthians 
is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to address sin within the church at Corinth. And with each rebuke, he either inadvertently or intentionally pointed out the faults of the leaders who were within that church. There was improper teaching. There was poor judgment and oversight. There was an unwillingness to address sin by the leaders. And the leaders felt the heat of his rebuke. So they came out with accusations of their own. 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's response to those accusations. Now, while responding to the accusations, he draws their attention to a spiritual battle that was happening all around them. And he shows how the forces of darkness are influencing godly people to act in ungodly ways. He uses words like war, weapons, warfare, destruction, fortresses, and destroying to remind them you're in a battle. And this is a battle that is happening for your mind. And whoever gets the mind wins the battle. We have to be unbelievably clear. The battle is happening in your mind and for your mind. So last week, I laid out the basics of spiritual warfare. We're going to go through those very quickly. First, our battle is spiritual based on verse number three. Although we live in the flesh, that is within this physical body, we do not war according to the flesh that is within this physical realm. It is a spiritual battle that is happening. We have to be clear on that. Otherwise, we attack the person instead of the influence. We go after the effect and not after the cause. Second, our weapons are spiritual. Verse number four, our weapons must match our warfare. And there's three primary weapons that we covered this last week in the process of spiritual warfare. Weapon number one was the Word of God. Ephesians 6.17 calls it the sword of the Spirit. It is not our sword to do with as we please. It is the sword of the Spirit. We must be careful in how we handle the Word of God. Weapon number two is the presence of God. Deuteronomy 1, Zechariah 4, Jude verse 9, and many other texts, they speak of God fighting battles on behalf of his people, pushing back forces of darkness. We see that throughout Scripture. Weapon number three is the prayers of God's people. James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. It is in prayer that we are resourced for the battle. It is in prayer that we find perspective for what we're walking through. It is in prayer that God calms us down when we need to be calmed down. It is in prayer that God brings guidance when we need guidance. Prayer is communication with God, and everything is going to flow out of this relationship with him. Now, verse number four, it tells us that these weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And I shared last week that the Apostle Paul has now flipped the script. Instead of it being that believers are just on the defensive, this is now believers on the offensive. It's believers who are on the attack. So we find that those enemy fortresses, based on verse number five, represent speculations or lofty ideas or false concepts that keep people from knowing God. That is extremely important. We're going to pull this out a little bit more in just a few moments, but this battle is not just about the enemy ruining your day. It's deeper than that. This battle is not just about what you're facing in that moment. The circumstances 
are often what the enemy uses to get you away from the goal. The ultimate goal is for you and I to know God. The ultimate goal is relationship with God. So if he can use the circumstances you're facing, if he can use the thoughts going through your mind, if he can use those pieces to get you away from the goal, he's going to win the battle in your life. The issue here is us knowing what the issue is really about. It's an attack against knowing him. That brings us into our third piece. Our ability to know God is under attack. This is where the attack is leading. What does the enemy want to do? He wants to disrupt your ability to know God. Spiritual warfare, as I've already stated, it is an attack against life's ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of life is to know God. The daily goal is to spend time with him. So Satan is attempting to capture your thoughts so that you are no longer pursuing God to know him. Instead, you are pursuing lesser things. And he will use your frustrations and he'll use your fears to accomplish that. He'll use your bitterness and he'll use your anger to accomplish that. He will use your ambitions. He will use your goals. Sometimes he will even use your blessings to accomplish that. Whatever is not submitted to the obedience of Christ, he can now use as a distraction to get you away from the goal. That's where we left off last week, but that's not where the text ends. So I want us to pick up in that same section and let's keep drawing this through. And I want, to sh- I want to show you how it leads directly into renewing the mind over in Romans chapter 12. So I just stated our ability to know God is under attack. Now we need to stop and ask the question, why would Satan want to distract you from knowing God? Why would he want to distract you? And it's about more than knowledge about God. It's about knowing him. It's about a close, intimate relationship. Why would the enemy want to distract you from having a close relationship with God? If you happen to have been reading our book of the month, then you probably have already seen the answer for this. In Clyde Cranford's book, Because We Love Him, he made this connection. The more you know God, the more you love God. The more you love God, the more you obey him. Let me say that sequence again. The more you know God, the more you love God. The more you love God, the more you obey him. Here's how Jesus unlocks that same idea. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Sometimes we think our disobedience or our sin is a discipline problem. Like, I just got to get it together. I got to discipline myself into submission. Jesus would say, no, it's a love problem. The issue is a love relationship with God. Love is the great motivator for obedience, and that flows out of an intimate knowledge of God. So when believers obey the truths of God's word, it changes everything. A a statement I've shared multiple times is it's not the truth that you know that'll change your life. It's the truth that you live that'll change your life. 
So as believers grow in an intimate knowledge of God, and that knowledge now moves over to love, and that love is now manifested in obedience, God begins to do things in that person's life. When that happens, you no longer have to beg that person to give. You don't have to beg that person to serve. You don't have to beg that person to walk righteously. You don't have to beg that person to share what Jesus is doing in their life. It is the natural overflow of a love relationship with God. And by the way, that is how gospel movements get started. We have to be really clear. I think in some ways, even though some good things have come from it, I think in some ways the church growth movement has actually hurt a spirit-led movement in the church. And that is we focus a whole lot more on what's happening in a room and what's happening with the furniture in the room and what's happening with the setting of the room than the God who we're supposed to be serving in that room. So gospel movements do not occur because one church has a better sound system than the other. Or one church has a better light show than the other. Or one church has pixie dust falling from the ceiling. Gospel movements do not occur because one church will sing hymns and another contemporary songs or vice versa. They do not occur because one church has pews and another one has chairs or vice versa. They do not occur because one church is more cerebral and the other is more experiential or vice versa. Gospel movements occur when God's people fall madly in love with Jesus. That's the beginning of that. Gospel movements occur when, when believers are living in joyful obedience to God's word, not out of fear of punishment, but out of deep desire for intimacy with God. They don't want to miss a second of God's presence in their life. Gospel movements occur when God's people seek his heart in prayer and seek his heart in repentance. Gospel movements occur when we lay aside the weights and the sin and the encumbrances and we run the race God set before us, here it is, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Listen, the moment your eyes come off of him onto something else, you're not running the race effectively. It has to be that we are running the way the Word of God says to run, that we are fighting the way the Word of God says to fight, that we are recognizing where the attack is coming from and how it is that that attack is holding us back from God's best being lived in and through our lives. When that happens, the space and the style of our worship are inconsequential to the one that we worship. But... But that type of gospel transformation only occurs when God is living his life in and through us. That flows out of relationship. And it is spending time with him, getting to know him, falling in love with him, that that transformation occurs. By the way, whenever believers are living like that, that's called overflow living. That's Jesus is my king living. That's Jesus is my everything living. That type of person cannot be broken. That type of person cannot be bought. And that type of person cannot be intimidated. Because when you know who you are before a holy God, and you know your identity in Christ, 
and you're focused on knowing him, and you recognize that if God is for you, who can be against you? That type of person is walking, listen, in a boldness, a holy boldness, a humble boldness before God that the world cannot understand. It's a, it's a positional piece that we're stepping in. But listen, part of Satan's strategy has always been to eliminate potential before there's a possibility. Think about this. He tried to eliminate Moses before he could lead God's people out of bondage. He tried to eliminate Jesus before he could complete the work of redemption. He tried to eliminate Paul before he could take the gospel to the nations. And he will try to eliminate you before God can fully live through you. Satan is not scared of any of us. But he is terrified of God living through us. His strategy is to do whatever it takes to keep you from focusing on knowing him. So, here it is. If that means keeping our minds busy, he's going to keep your mind busy. If it means keeping you distracted, he'll keep you distracted. If it means making sure we focus on petty arguments and on our own little worlds, that's what's going to happen. If, if that means believers get caught up fighting each other instead of fighting the spiritual forces of darkness, that's a part of the plan. If that means entertaining us until we have no time for eternal matters, he's going to do it. If that means fueling our insecurities so that we turn our focus inward, that's what he's going to do. If that means even studying the Bible for knowledge's sake, he's not, he's not got a problem with that because knowledge itself is going to puff us up with pride. He's going to keep diluting our appetite for true relationship as oftentimes we feast on the remnants of dead religion. Let Christians have their worship services. Let Christians continue to do that as long as the focus is on morality training with a sideshow of comparative self-righteousness. He doesn't mind that a bit. But the moment people start saying, the goal of my life is to get to know him. The goal of my life is to sit in the presence of my Savior. The goal of my life is that I might know him and that he might live his life through me. When that starts to happen, watch the ways the enemy will begin to attack, to derail you off of that path and back onto something of lesser pursuit. Here's number four. The mind is to be closely monitored. It says in the text, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As I've already said, a major part of the battle is happening in your mind and for your mind. So step number one is guard the gate of your mind. That is, whatever you let in is what you're going to think about, and that's both good and bad. So when you think about lies and you let lies circulate in your head, you're going to become focused on lies. If you let bitterness or jealousy or ungodly thoughts go unchecked in your mind, you're going to dwell on those things. It's going to take you off of the goal. But if you allow God's truth to renew your mind and you think about the things of the word, then it's going to help walk you forward towards the right goal. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, it's one thing for us to say that. 
It's another thing for us to say, how exactly do we do it? What happens when, according to statistics, there's upwards of 10,000 to 60,000 thoughts a day going through the average brain? And this says, take every thought captive. That's a lot of thoughts being taken captive. There's thoughts I have going on in my head all the time that I'm like, where in the world did that even come from? So, like, how do you live this out? One of the first things that you should do when you see a text like this is to remember what Major Ian Thomas has already shared. The commands of God are written to the life of Christ in you. If you think it is up to you to stop 60,000 thoughts during the day, you're going to be in trouble. I, I can't even get all my thoughts together when I'm preaching, much less the other 50,000 that are happening out there. So first, it brings us back into humility and submission before God. I can't, you can through me, God. But now, there are some practical things that you can stop and do yourself. That is, number one, where is the thought coming from? Stop and ask yourself that. When, when there's a thought that is replaying in your mind over and over, stop and ask, where is the thought coming from? Question number two, where is the thought leading? If I stay on this path, where is it going to lead me? Is it going to lead me back into the presence of God, back into worship, back into right fellowship with God? Or is it just going to lead me towards being mad? Is it going to lead me towards a spiritual pitfall? Is it going to lead me towards hurting others? Like, where is this thought leading? Question three, what does God's word say about this idea, thought, or belief? If you want to find out where God is at on a particular thought, ask the question, like, what does Scripture already say about this? Question number four, have I submitted this thought to the obedience of Christ? And if not, why? Did you know sometimes we're unwilling to submit our thoughts because secretly we like to entertain them? Secretly, we found our identity in these thoughts. Secretly, it fuels our self-righteousness. Secretly, we're saying, it's just in my head, and as long as it stays there, I'm okay. But remember, what happens in here is soon going to be lived out in the real world. Our actions follow the path that our mind has already taken. Question number five, is this thought encouraging me or distracting me from knowing God? And when you begin to ask those questions, and when you begin to recognize that thought is not coming from God, it's not leading to him, it's not submitted to him, and it's distracting you from knowing him, when you recognize that, here's what you do. You pick up your weapons and you go to war. You recognize that i got to be in the Word. So you go into the Word. Say, God, fill my mind with truth. Renew my mind with truth. In those moments, if God's presence is a part of our weapons, we go and we sit. We abide in the presence of God. Sit with Him. Be at home with Him. And in that moment, say, God, right now my mind's so distracted. Unless you remind me of your presence, I'm going to miss it. So, God, would you do that for me? And then the third part is the prayers of of God's people. You take those needs and you bring them to God and listen, and you trust him to answer as he pleases. Amen. You know what happens in a lot of churches on Sunday? 
we come down here and we say, God, I'm asking you to work in this situation. I'm asking you to change this. I'm asking you to work in a marriage. I'm asking you to heal. In Jesus' name, amen. And then we walk right back out and we say, now how am I going to handle that myself? We pick back up the very thing that we had just said, God, I need you on. And then we act as though we're God when we walk away. If you're going to bring it to God in prayer, drop it at his feet and trust him that his ways are best. Trust him that his timing is best. Trust him that he sees what you cannot see. Trust him that he has wisdom that you don't have the wisdom of. Trust him that he's working behind the scenes even when you can't see it. Man, there needs to be a song about that somewhere, Seth. Listen, a lot of times we sing what we desire in our life, but we don't live what we just sang. So here's the next part of this. If step one is guard the gate of the mind, step two is renew the mind in truth. That's where Romans 12.2 comes in. Again, remember, the battle is for the mind. So here's what it says, Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 was in the context of spiritual warfare. Romans chapter 12 is in the context of spiritual service of worship. Now we always got to take a moment to get our context together. So Look at what it says in verse number 1 of Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There's that phrase, spiritual service of worship. So verse number 1, Paul focuses on the body, And he says, let it be a holy and acceptable sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, what happens with this body, that is what happens with the work that we do, what happens with the gifts that God has entrusted to us, how we use those gifts, how we operate, all of those things are a part of a spiritual service of worship. Worship is more than what we sing. Worship is how we live. One of the pieces that I've shared over the years is you don't come to church to worship. You bring your worship to church. And if you're not worshiping the other six days out of the week, oftentimes you stand and observe as other people are worshiping. When you see people that get freed up, And you see people, they're like, you don't know what Jesus did for me this last week. And all of a sudden, somebody on their left, somebody on their right, they're singing about what they just lived. All of a sudden, it's like, thank you, Jesus. That's my life. That's my testimony. That's what's going on for me. There is something about stepping into worship where the people of God are ready to collectively worship together. (laughs) Ooh, I'm going to tell you. There, mm. 
sometimes I get so many thoughts. Remember these thoughts we're talking about. I get so many thoughts. I'm like, you're going to get yourself in trouble there. You're going to get yourself in trouble there. Nope, stop that one. Here's a good thought right here. So anyway, here's my thought. Here's my thoughts. One of the reasons why the world does not connect our lives with what happens on Sunday is because we have disconnected our lives from what happens on Sunday. We show up expecting someone to bless us. We show up and we say, what are they going to have today? Is it going to be the type of music I like today? I hadn't heard my favorite song recently. I'm pretty sure Paul preached out of that passage three months ago. I did. That's okay, though. So-and-so didn't say anything to me at the front door. And before you know it, we walk in with an offense, and then we walk right back out, and we say, I don't know why I even go to church. I just, I don't get anything from it. Well, bro, when you walk it in, and you hold on to it when you're here, and you walk it right back out the doors on the other side, you missed what worship is about. And by the way, it's okay if they haven't sung your favorite song because the song wasn't for you. Listen, it doesn't matter if you don't like what I'm preaching. If I'm preaching the word, it's not my word, it's his word. When, when the church starts acting like the church, when we start coming together and we recognize there's a battle that's happening and a part of, here it is, listen, a part of my Christian service is not just fighting by myself. A part of my Christian service is I come in and I let others know God's done this. How can I pray for you? Where can I serve here? And we fight together. Listen, the enemy's not going to defeat what God has going on there. All right. There are days when I got all sorts of notes, and there's days when God says, no, we're not going to do any of that. So we'll find out what we can get back into. Verse 1 is about worship. Verse 2 in Romans chapter 12 is about mindset. We're told, do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed, it speaks of an outward expression that does not reflect an inward reality. The world is better translated this age. It speaks of a system of beliefs, values, the spirit of the age. So what Paul is saying is, believers, do not be conformed to, fitted to, molded by, or shaped with the beliefs, the values of this present age. The world's systems and values do not reflect the inward reality of who we are in Christ. When godly people act in ungodly ways, often it is the result of the fact that we have adopted the world's values and not God's. So in this text, instead of conforming, we are to be transformed. The English word there is metamorphosis. It, it, it means that the outside needs to reflect the inside. There, there's a place, a famous place, where Matthew speaks of this word, Matthew 17, verse 2. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. And within that moment right there, Jesus' outward appearance is displaying a glimpse of his inner nature, a glimpse of that divine nature there. The outside matches the inside. 
Paul is telling believers, if you let this world's values and systems conform you, mold you, shape you, then your outside behavior is not going to match who you are in Christ. Godly people will act in ungodly ways. But if you're transformed, if you are allowing what is on the inside to now be demonstrated on the outside, then godly people will act in godly ways. How do you make that happen? He says, by the renewing of your mind. The battle is happening here. He says in verse number two, we will prove what the will of God is. In other words, we'll show the world what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. There's consistency between position and practice, between our beliefs and our behavior, between what we profess and how we live. When that happens, we stop acting like hypocrites. Now, I'm not a church growth expert, but I'm going to have to think that's going to help us reach the world a little bit better. Amen? Verse 1 is about worship. Verse 2 is about mindset. Verse 3 is about pride. One of the biggest obstacles to right worship in renewed minds is pride. Paul warns us, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, he says, think soberly or think with discernment of yourself. That, that, that same word is, in our vernacular, is what we often refer to as self-awareness. A person who is said to be self-aware, they, they have an accurate view of who they are and how they're gifted and where they're weak and where they're strong. And then listen to this, and they live according to that. That person is said to be self-aware. Now, verses 4 through 8 of Romans 12 are about serving. Now, here's a really important connection. Christians, instead of sitting in the presence of God to get to know him, are far more likely to stand up and do something because we like how doing makes us feel. We, we like seeing tangible results. Sometimes we like the pat on the back. There's nobody patting you on the back when you come out of your devotional time with God. In that moment, it might not feel like you're doing something. Now, here's the reason I want to bring that up. And got to listen carefully to my word in here. There is a movement in evangelical churches to emphasize a social gospel of service over the true gospel that saves. Now, listen to this. Please hear me in context. I am not saying that Christians should not serve others, not love the community, not act in tangible ways. In fact, the true gospel that saves will always encourage the saved to serve the world around them. But a social gospel of service often will focus on temporal needs apart from the redemption of the soul. They focus on what's happening now instead of God's gift of eternal life, apart from the realities of heaven and hell, apart from the truth that sets people free in this life and in the life to come. If we ever disconnect the gospel that saves from our efforts to serve, we all lose. Now here's how this whole piece fits together. Big picture, it's the battle of the mind. Verse 1, we saw that what we do with our bodies is an act of of worship. Worship is more than the songs that we sing. Worship is about how we live. In a statement that you've now heard a couple of times, what we believe determines how we act. How we act determines if we win. 
So part of this impacts your worship. Verse 2, we're reminded that our outward actions are to reflect our inward reality. When we're being conformed to this world, we don't match outside and inside, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. When that happens, we prove that God's will is good and perfect and right. Then we go on from there. Verse 3, we discover that a major obstacle to right worship and renewed minds is pride. If you don't deal with the pride piece of this, you're going to think this is for somebody else. We always think that we're much further along than what we really are. And when you're trying to act as though you're here, and the reality is you're here, you're not doing the right things to move forward. Instead, you're living a lie yourself. Finally, verses 4 through 8, we're taught that our service is to flow out of our spiritual gifts as God directs us. Now, I know that's a lot of connections. Let's bring it back together with the battle. How do we learn proper worship? Through his word and at the feet of Jesus. It flows out of knowing him. How do we have our minds renewed? It's through his word as we spend time with him. It's part of knowing him. How does God develop a discerning heart in his people? It's through his word as he lives his life through us. As we're in an abiding relationship, he gives discernment. How do we discover even our spiritual gifts to serve? It's by being in his word, by being with him, and allowing him to direct how we serve. Every bit of what I've just described comes back to, do you know him? Every bit comes back to what's happening in the mind. Are we taking thoughts captive? Are we renewing our minds in truth? So as we finish, I'm going to ask you if you would to bow with me for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just a moment. I'm going to lead in a series of questions that I'm going to ask you to do everything you can to be in the moment with God and be honest, truly honest with where you are before him. So my first question is, do you know him? Not do you know about God, but do you know him? Has there been a moment in your life that you have repented of your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, that he has changed your life? Another question is, are you taking every thought captive? Are you allowing the enemy to have a field day in your mind because you just are not focused on where you need to be focused? Here's another question. Is pride disrupting your worship and degrading your witness? Is it something where the enemy has now used pieces in your mind that have been left unchecked in order to keep you not only from knowing God, but even being able to worship him in spirit and in truth? As a result, there is now a discrepancy between what you profess and how you live. Are you trying to distract yourself with busyness or serving because it's a lot easier to do that than it is to really get to know God. Have you made worship 
about something other than deep adoration and love for God. If any of those are answers that you recognize places where the enemy has been attacking, my question is now, how long will you allow the enemy to disrupt your ability to know God and for him to live fully through you? So many times we come into church services and our focus is not on what God wants to do in the moment. Our focus is far more on what we're going to do afterwards. So in just a moment, I'm going to have a word of prayer. I'm going to ask people to stand where they're at. And we're going to have a time in which Seth and the praise team, they're going to sing a song of worship over us. I want you to listen to these words. If, if you feel led to sing, that's great, but don't miss that moment of being with God. Let God do the work in your heart. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we cannot do the work ourselves. We cannot bring down the fortresses ourselves. But God, we can pursue you in spirit and in truth. So Lord, we're asking today, may your will be done. And God, we will give you praise for all that happens. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand where you are right now as the praise team sings? You might want to use where you're at as a place of worship. You might want to kneel where you're at. You might want to come to the front. Our pastors are going to be at the very ends of the aisles. Just allow the Spirit of God to lead you.